You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Democracy is a little bit of a gamble and a little bit of a miracle. This idea that we will all agree to be able to govern ourselves. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The materials you need to build a wildfire-resistant home, are they're all here. They're on the shelf at your local, your local hardware store. What do I do if someone pulls off my headscarf? But what do I do as someone who has privilege when I see one of my neighbors or, or friends being attacked? This is KCBS In-Depth. It's been a tense few weeks in U.S.-Iran relations, with hostilities seeming to spiral beyond control following the U.S. strike against Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. So many heaved a sigh of relief when Iran's retaliation, which came in the form of a missile strike on two military bases in Iraq, resulted in no casualties and, after the strike, Leaders in both the U.S. and Iran seem to signal a desire to de-escalate the crisis. But after all that, is this strike really the end of the story? I'm Keith Benconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today on the program, we're going to ask where we go from here after this series of attacks and counterattacks, and whether or not de-escalation can't really continue. This should be a wake-up call for the need to really change course in how we're approaching the Iran policy. Then in the second half of the program, it's a complicated world out there, and the U.S.-Iran conflict isn't the only one worth paying attention to. So to broaden our view, we're going to bring on KCBS's resident crisis expert, Jason Brooks, for his perspective on the coming year of global conflict. We as Americans can't solve all of these crises, obviously, but America does have an outsized role in the world. All that and more coming up on KCBS In-Depth. To help us sort through just exactly what happened over these past few weeks and what has yet to unfold, we're joined now by two longtime Iran watchers and policy experts. First up, it's going to be a voice uh, that's going to be familiar to many KCBS listeners. That would be Abbas Milani. He is the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Professor Milani, thanks for joining KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. Also joining us, Dalia Dasa Kay, who is the director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy at the Rand Corporation. Dalia Dasa Kay, welcome to you as well. Thank you. So the key word that many latched on to following Iran's missile attack on Iraqi bases this week was concluded. Uh, in the wake of the attack, Iran's foreign minister tweeted that Tehran had, quote, concluded proportionate measures in self-defense, end quote. But just how conclusive was that attack, Professor Milani? Is this chapter in the U.S.-Iran conflict, is it coming to a close? Well, unfortunately, after Mr. Zarif uh, sent that tweet, uh, many Iranian uh, officials from the supreme leader himself to commanders of the IRGC have been repeating ad nauseum that uh, this was just the beginning and not the conclusion of the revenge. Uh, Mr. Khamenei said this was just a slap and that the real revenge will come. Uh, In spite of this rhetorical flourish, I am not sure they really do want to pick a fight with the United States at this time. I'm hoping that they will actually de-escalate and allow this to be the end rather than the beginning. Dalia Dasake, what is your view? What do you expect to see in uh, the weeks and months ahead as this conflict continues to unfold? 
Well, I think certainly it's welcome that this uh, retaliation uh, by the Iranians did not lead to uh, American or other casualties. Uh, but I do not think this is over, unfortunately. I think that uh, the conditions on the ground are still incredibly risky. You still have Iranian-backed Iraqi militia groups uh, continuing to threaten retaliation. Uh, you have American forces in close proximity to these militia forces. And ultimately, you have the same set of conditions, this maximum pressure campaign uh, against Iran uh, that led to the initial lashing out from the Iranians over the summer against American interest in the region. So for a whole host of reasons, I'm quite skeptical we've seen the end of it. Uh, and I think uh, we need to be very careful of what conclu conclusions we draw from this particular pause. Uh, now, what significance, Dalia Dasake, do you see in the fact that there were no casualties? Uh, I think that there's some disagreement uh, over whether or not it was Iran's intention to inflict casualties. Some people point to the fact that it looks like where the missiles struck, they were intending to really do some real harm. Others are pointing to the fact that it seems like there was some communication between leaders uh, that these attacks were coming. So what do you read there in terms of uh, how much harm Iran was trying to inflict and what that says about their intentions. Well, of course, it's always hard to read what's actually happening in Tehran. But as Dr. Milani said, I don't. I think it's pretty clear the Iranians were not looking for uh, a full-fledged uh, conflict at this time. And it does seem the attack was calculated. Uh, but I do think that needs to be balanced against the fact that they did launch missiles uh, directly from Iranian territory and publicly claimed this attack. This is the first time they publicly claimed an attack against American forces. This is unique in that we are now in a direct U.S.-Iranian conflict. Uh, so there was significant risk involved with this attack. So I don't think we should uh, underestimate how dangerous the situation continues to be. Mm. Now, a lot of people, now that the dust has settled and they're assessing exactly what the fallout is, many people are making the case that in some ways, uh, the U.S. won this round. They point to the fact that the reprisal was not as significant as it could have been. They point to the fact that Qassam Soleimani was a significant antagonist to U.S. interests in the region. Uh, now he has been uh, taken out of the picture. And they are making the case that this act on the part of the U.S. has reestablished deterrence in the region, deterrence against further Iranian aggression. Uh, Professor Milani, what do you make of that view, that perhaps uh, this act has uh, reestablished deterrence? Well, uh, I, I don't agree with that because uh, I think uh, what is going to unfold has yet uh, to be seen. We don't know how the landscape will change. Uh, I think... In the short term, this was clearly a, a gain for the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime, before this attack, was very much under ropes. The economy has been and is in shambles. Two months ago, there were demonstrations, uh, massive demonstrations throughout Iran. This regime had to kill upward of 1,000 people, arrest upward of 7,000 people, 10,000 some people. Put it, to put down this uh, demonstration. But then with the death of Soleimani, because of his rather unique position within Iran, a unique position that had been very calculated, created, uh, very clearly calculatedly created by the regime, uh, there was an outpouring of support for the regime. And if the regime had any wisdom, and it doesn't, uh, it has turned out that it doesn't, it could have used that as a moment for its own consolidation. 
and a kind of a national reconciliation. Instead, immediately after the end of these demonstrations, they have uh, talked tougher against Iranian dissidents, Iranian Democrats, Iranian reformists. So it might, uh, in the uh, midterm and the long term, be very much detrimental to the regime, but they could have uh, used this to consolidate their hold. Uh, they could have used it in Iraq, where they're literally being thrown out of Iraq uh, by uh, a combination of Iraqi Sunnis and Iraqi uh, uh, disgruntled Shiites. And uh, Dalia Dasake with the Rand Corporation, what's your view on this deterrence question? Well, I think the fact that the region is so on edge at the moment, uh, there's travel warnings against Americans in the region, every uh, U.S. facility is on high alert, uh, and we did, in fact, have an Iranian retaliation and threats of further action. So I I, I think it's er too early to judge whether the deterrence is succeeding. I think, in fact, it's really too early to declare winners or losers altogether. Uh, I think a lot of sides are losing in this, and what we could look at is is already uh, the cost that uh, and the price that we're paying for this action. I think one of the most significant from a U.S. side is the distraction uh, and weakening of the counter-ISIS fight uh, because of this rupture in our relationship with the Iraqi government. Uh, NATO has already suspended some of these missions in Iraq. Uh, so we, um, not to mention the continued Iranian resumption of some warring nuclear activities, which began to be fair before the Soleimani killing, but uh, certainly are not stopping in its aftermath. So I think we're already seeing some costs. We should be very careful about early uh, declarations of winners and losers. Professor Milani, I want to return to a point that you were just making, that is the response within Iran to these uh, weeks of back and forth retaliations. I think it's very notable that millions and millions of people turned out on the street to mourn the death of uh, Qasem Soleimani, as uh, you mentioned a moment ago. What what do you expect in the weeks ahead? Is this going to be something that uh, drives Iranians together in opposition against America? How how important is that dynamic going to be going forward? Well, uh, as I said, I think the regime essentially uh, went back to its old tricks and its uh, old style. And instead of trying to use that occasion to its own benefit, it is trying to consolidate further uh, and it's trying to uh, silence uh, dissidents. Uh, I don't know what the number was of people who came out. There are very, very varied uh, numbers. The regime certainly claims several million, certainly several hundred thousand. I think it's clearly the most significant demonstration I have seen uh, since the death of Mr. Khomeini. Uh, but you have to remember the regime literally shut down the country for three days. They declared three days of national mourning. The Iranian media, all state-controlled, was churning out 24 hours a day for three days, nothing but eulogies, nothing but patriotic songs, nothing but Shiite uh, morning rituals to get people to come out. So it was very concentrated effort by them to bring people out. There was also, I think, favorable sentiment to uh, Soleimani in some segments of the Iranian people because he had fought ISIS. He had fought Iraq when Iraq had invaded Iran earlier. So it was a very strange combination. Uh, and I, I think some people were genuinely uh, angry that the United States took out the second most powerful man in Iran in Iraq, 
where he was the official guest of the Iraqi government. That combined to make that moment. But this regime, I think, is too incompetent to try to use that for anything other than self-preservation and further consolidation of despotism. All right. Well, uh, before we move on, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're looking at what the conflict with Iran might be headed next after weeks of attacks and counterattacks. Uh, for some perspective, we're joined by Abbas Milani. He's the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. We're also joined by Dalia Dasakeh, who is the director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy uh, at the Rand Corporation. Uh, Dalia Dasakeh, as we look for what forms r- further reprisal from Iran might take, Obviously, Iran has backing of many militia groups throughout the Middle East. We saw some of the consequences of that in the run-up to this crisis as some of those groups were antagonizing American forces and even the embassy in Baghdad. Do you expect, if Iran is not going to have uh, direct reprisals, any more direct reprisals against U.S. forces, might we see more activity from these groups in the months ahead? Yeah, I think that's why the region is so on edge. Uh, the first, I think, arena where there's strong concern is, of course, in Iraq itself, uh, particularly given that uh, the uh, Iraqi militia leader who was also killed in the Soleimani attack, um, his death has not been avenged, according to his supporters. So I think there is a, a very close, a, important place to watch. Um, and uh, certainly there's a lot of vulnerability in Iraq. We still have uh, close to 5,000 U.S. forces on the ground there. Again, as I said, in close proximity to to these militia groups. Uh, the red line now uh, from the administration appears to be any U.S. death will lead to a retaliation. So it's really a very volatile uh, moment. Uh, beyond Iraq, I think, uh, of course, Iran has spent years of uh, uh, generating and supporting and uh, developing uh, some of these non-state movements in Lebanon, Syria, and beyond. Uh, so I think uh, those are certainly arenas uh, to look for. And uh, beyond that, I think our Gulf partners are quite worried in the Arab Gulf because, as we saw, there were attacks against Saudi oil facilities and uh, other Gulf uh, oil assets uh, in the region over the summer into September. Uh, So those are all possibilities uh, or potential targets if this conflict escalates further. And Professor Milani, what sort of position does this put the U.S. in if it's trying to have some kind of coordinated international response to Iran? We did not coordinate with our European allies. Uh, Iraq, many in Iraq, obviously, are angered about this. The Iraqi parliament issuing a uh, an order, a non-binding order, we should say, but an order nonetheless for uh, U.S. military forces to leave Iraq. What sort of footing does this leave uh, America on on the global stage at this point? Well, first of all, in Iraq, I think there is serious talk of trying to ask uh, the U.S. forces to leave. But there's also very important indications that Shiite leadership uh, non-Iranian connected leadership doesn't want this war to be extended into Iraq. Ayatollah Sistani just issued a very, uh, very important message saying that I don't want outside forces to fight their fights here. Muqtada Sadr, another very prominent Shiite leader, he said the war has, this conflict has ended, we need to stand down. So in Iraq, it's going to be a very interesting uh, development. But regionally, I think, uh, 
although NATO has given support to the U.S., uh, although uh, U.S. allies traditionally have uh, given support, but even Israel, which initially uh, very much uh, was happy about the hit on Soleimani, uh, followed it by Netanyahu saying that we want to stay out of this. This is not uh, our fight. So I think it's going to be very uh, complicated. Uh, The fact that uh, almost all uh, major European airlines uh, have begun to cancel flights to Iran uh, after uh, the, the tragedy that happened in the Ukrainian case uh, indicates that they too seem to think that uh, there are a possible continuation of conflict. Mm. And what about the Iran nuclear deal? Of course, uh, Tehran has said that it is uh, abandoning the remaining limits uh, of the nuclear deal, but it seems that it is not ready to enrich the uranium to levels that would uh, prepare for the actual making of nuclear bombs. So perhaps some room for negotiation still there. What what do you see going forward with the uh, Iranian deal? I'll, I want to ask both of your views, but let's start with uh, Dalia Dasake. Well, uh, I think, you know, certainly it's not moving in a positive direction. It wasn't uh, moving that way before this killing, and it's not um, going in a positive direction now. The U.S. withdrawal from the agreement in 2018 is what really sparked uh, the beginning of the unraveling of the agreement. I think the Iranians are looking to hedge. They want to take every step possible to uh, signal that um, they there is a cost to pay for this punishing maximum pressure that they have been pace, uh, place, uh, facing. But on the other hand, they don't want to completely antagonize the other members uh, who are still in this agreement, and particularly the Europeans and, of course, the Russians and Chinese who are more likely to back them. So I think they're continuing to hedge um, the lifting of restrictions Restrictions they're lifting or uh, uh, moving back from any restrictions on uranium enrichment is incredibly dangerous. The Israelis are going to look at this as a very provocative move, uh, putting them far closer to the ability to move toward weaponizing their program, although they're far from that still, thankfully. Uh, but we do still have inspections in place, so I think we should stay calm on that front and but vigilant. Um, but it's certainly something to watch for. Uh, and I just I just want to add something to what. Dr. Milani said, I think, is so important about the region getting very tired of the U.S. and Iran fighting these conflicts on their territories. Uh, I think in the months and possibly years ahead, I think we're going to see more interest we already have from regional players, even in the Arab Gulf, the Saudis and Emiratis, and trying to de-escalate on their own, uh, because they ultimately are the ones who pay the price uh, for this uh, U.S.-Iranian conflict. Hmm. Yeah, so something to watch there uh, as well. Professor Milani, I mean, if Iran has not walked away completely from the nuclear deal, if there are still some constraints that it is willing to recognize, does that perhaps suggest that uh, it is still hoping to make friends in Europe or, or win, win some of uh, European nations to their cause, to their at least their sympathy? Uh, I think... Uh Clearly, they need to keep uh, Europe in their corner. They, keep, they need to keep Russia and China uh, as close allies. Uh, so uh, they also need to show that they're going to act militant and they're going to defy the United States. And if the United States walks away, they can walk away. So the, they are trying to do two things at the same time, sound tough but not act very tough. So they said we are not going to abide by any restrictions that the nuclear deal placed on us, but actually we are not going to do certain things that they knew would be very much uh, sensitive. There is a movement in the parliament, uh, a movement initiated by a gentleman who was till 
a few weeks ago, one of the more moderate voices in the parliament, to suggest that Iran should withdraw from MPT. Uh, again, uh, f- from the declaration to the action, I think there's a long way to go. But that gesture itself indicates that they want to uh, have the cake and eat it too. They want to sound tough, that they're defiant, that they're going to walk away from the deal, but they know that they really shouldn't if they want Europe and they want uh, China and Russia. And again, they have to go back to the problem that they face. The fundamental problem they face is economic. The Iranian economy is in a profound crisis. And unless they do structural changes, that crisis won't be solved. And they're absolutely proving to be incapable of even beginning the kinds of changes they need to make. Mm. All right. Well, uh, last up, I know that folks that are experts and are steeped in this stuff hate these sorts of simplistic questions, but this is a radio interview, so we are going to indulge in a little bit of oversimplification. Curious for both of your views, I think the question that a lot of people are asking at this point is, following these weeks of conflicts, following this decision on the part of the Trump administration to make this drone strike, is the U.S., safer than it was before the strike was made is 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 more has more security been achieved than what we had before uh, professor milani what's your view on that question uh, unfortunately i don't believe so uh, i don't believe so in the short run uh, and in the long run i think the most consequential potential uh, result of all of this of these tensions and this hit on soleimani is the gains that russia and china are making not just in Iran, but throughout the region. Uh, as people see that the United States wants to withdraw from the region, as they see United States continuously involved in this uh, hit-and-run war with Iran, you clearly see indications that China and Russia are gaining strong footholds. And I'm not just talking about Syria. I'm talking about the Persian Gulf, where for the first time in history, Chinese Navy Russian Navy and Iranian Navy held joint naval operations. That is a very serious long-term strategic change. Hmm. And uh, Dalia Dasake with the RAND Corporation, what's your view? Uh, has the U.S. become more secure than it was before these strikes were made? Well, I think I would share Dr. Milani's assessment that I, I think we're, we're likely less safe. Uh, certainly, uh, Soleimani, General Soleimani, was a very dangerous man. Uh, the RGC Quds Force is a very dangerous organization. Uh, but uh, there are many others who um, share his motivations and uh, interest in the region um, and are looking to cause harm to U.S. interest. Uh, I think, you know, again, we have to wait. In, for, I think, uh, a longer-term uh, view to understand how this really will play out. But in at least how things are looking now, we're paying uh, a, quite a price in terms of our vulnerabilities, uh, in terms of terrorism, in terms of, as Dr. Milani said, Russian and uh, ca- Chinese capitalization of this, taking uh, the opportunity to increase their influence in the region that was happening before. Uh, but I think there are a lot of reasons for alarm. Uh, and I think this should be a wake-up call. This should lead to complacency. This should be a wake-up call for the need to really change course in how we're approaching the Iran policy, how we're approaching this region, because more of the same is likely to lead to uh, more escalation and more loss of life. 
All right. And a lot more to come, obviously, in the weeks and months ahead. And we will be covering it for you here at KCBS Radio. But we're going to have to leave this conversation for now. Once again, we were joined here by Abbas Milani. He's the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Professor Milani, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We were also joined by Dalia Dasa Kay. She's the director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy at the Rand Corporation. Dalia Dasa Kay, thank you to you as well. Thank you so much. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, a weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, a look at what's next following a momentous few weeks in global affairs. Up next on the program, well, with the attacks and counterattacks of the past few weeks, all eyes have been pointed squarely at the conflict with Iran. But it is a fractious world out there, and many more crises loom outside of Iran as well. So with the world knocking at our doors, I thought it would be a good time to bring in our very own global crisis watcher to help expand our view a little bit as we begin the new year in global conflict. That would be Jason Brooks. By day, he is our business anchor, but by night, he's the host of the KCBS podcast, The Crisis Next Door, which unpacks the stories behind global feuds. Uh, Jason Brooks, thanks so much for being on KCBS In Depth. Keith, it's good to be with you. So as I alluded to right there, we have been giving a lot of attention to Iran over the past couple of weeks. But as your show makes very clear, we can't really get tunnel vision. There is a lot going on in the world out there. It certainly is. The world is a big place and there are crises all around the world. It's easy to pay attention to the Middle East because there are several going on at the same time. But there are other places. And I think you really have to pay attention to North Korea. Uh, North Korea is starting to ramp up some threatening language once again and saying that it's going to resume nuclear and long-range missile tests and blaming that on what North Korea calls the U.S. continued hostile policy towards the North Korean people. And Kim Jong-un warned that Pyongyang will soon possess a new strategic weapon. This is an absolutely key issue for the U.S. when it comes to security. There's a country that is working on nuclear weapons that is threatened to use those nuclear weapons against the U.S. One of the key factors in countering North Korea is the U.S. relationship with South Korea. That's a bit of a problem because those two countries have been on opposite sides of how to share costs for maintaining U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula. There have been several negotiations and so far no success. And there are fears that President Trump could withdraw U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula. There are about 30,000 U.S. troops almost used as a tripwire at the demilitarized zone between South Korea and North Korea. But that presence is absolutely a key in countering the North Korean threat. That really does bear a lot of attention. The rest of Asia, the Pacific Rim, obviously very focused on North Korea, Japan and China. China has long been a backer of North Korea, but China has a lot of fears of what would happen if there was a war involving North Korea, mainly fears of tremendous amounts of refugees pouring over the border into China from North Korea. Now, another global hotspot that we haven't really given too much thought to in recent years would be Libya. But you've covered that on your show. Uh, Remind us what's going on in Libya and why might it flare up in the year to come? 
Libya has been a hotspot for the past year and a half. Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar has been leading a rebel advance to take the capital of Tripoli from the UN-backed government of National Accord. Now, this is more than just a civil war inside Libya. Turkey backs that UN-backed government of National Accord, while Egypt is backing Haftar in the rebels. Turkey is threatening to send troops into Libya to prevent Haftar from capturing Tripoli. Now, Egypt has said that if Turkey goes ahead and does that, it will respond against Turkey. So what we have here is another potential conflict breaking out in the Middle East, North Africa region involving two major powers, Turkey and Egypt. Uh, this would add all sorts of complications to a number of other conflicts in the region, including Syria. And this is the last thing that the region needs, especially the Libyans, who have been dealing with a lot of pain for quite a long time after uh, the ruling of Gaddafi, the falling of Gaddafi, and now dealing with this Libya, this uh, civil war in Libya. And uh, Turkey and Egypt, uh, two powerful countries in their own right, threatening to go to war in Libya. This is definitely a conflict to watch in the coming weeks and months. All right. And uh, moving along to other global conflicts, you know, it does seem like global protest movements kind of come in waves. We saw that in uh, 1968, obviously. It kind of seems like uh, 2019 maybe have was once again another example of huge protest movements sweeping the world. What is 2020 looking like uh, in the aftermath of all that? It was very interesting to see the number of protests that broke out around the world in 2019 from Hong Kong, to Chile, to Lebanon, Iraq, other countries as well, Spain. Uh, and in many of these cases, we're talking about pocketbook issues leading people to the streets. In Chile, uh, it started off as a student demonstration against a metro fare hike that mushroomed well beyond that into protests against basic human needs and services provided by the government and the fact that they're not getting what they want from the government. Or you look to Hong Kong, where protests broke out against an extradition treaty, which would make it easier for Beijing to extradite uh, alleged criminals from Hong Kong into China. Uh, that obviously a very sore spot for a lot of people from Hong Kong, that they are now part of China after uh, Great Britain great gave back rule to China 20 years ago, and many people in Hong Kong simply do not want to be ruled by Beijing. And what initially started as that protest over the extradition treaty has gone well beyond that as, as Hong Kong's government pulled that extradition law off the books, but to no avail, as people in Hong Kong simply want to rule their own affairs. They don't want Beijing's hand in there. Uh, I don't see any change really taking place in 2020. None of these issues in any of those countries has been resolved. Those protests are still going on. We may not see them every day in the media. Uh, it's hard to cover one particular story day after day after day. Uh, the media will tend to look elsewhere as new events come along. But in all of those countries, uh, or in, in Hong Kong as well, those protests are continuing and there is no stopping them. All right. And uh, very last thing before I let you go, Jason. You know, I think that one thing that the last couple of weeks really proved is that there is a whole big world out there. And whether we like it or not, there's a lot of stuff that we as Americans do need to be paying attention to. We may prefer to pay attention to domestic politics. We've got a whole big 2020 election campaign to get ready for. But it, it does seem like 2020 is a year where global affairs really could take on an outsized role. 
I think that unless America has been involved in a war, it's a pretty inward-looking country for the most part. Uh, We've got a lot going on here, and it's understandable that people would focus more on domestic affairs over foreign affairs. But we live in a different world now than we ever did before. It's a truly global community. Whether people like that or not, our economy is tied in with the rest of the world, uh, such as the trade deal with China and the importance in that. Both sides need to have a good trade agreement. Both sides benefit from that. And there is spillover effect across the rest of the globe when it comes to things of that nature. Uh, U.S. businesses make investment decisions based on what they're seeing elsewhere in the world. And geopolitical tensions have a big influence on that. We as Americans can't solve all of these crises, obviously, but America does have an outsized role in the world in how things are conducted. And I think awareness is a very important thing. Um, Many of these topics eventually become big stories. They become uh, election fodder, uh, very big campaign issues at that. And I think as much as people can understand what's going on in the world around them, they will also have a better understanding of what's going on in the country they live in as well. All right, and we'll leave it on that note. That was Jason Brooks. You know him as our business anchor, keeping us up to date on all news business-related. Now you know him also as the Crisis Next Door host, a podcast which you can, by the way, find on kcbsradio.com. Jason Brooks, thanks so much for your time. You bet, Keith. It was a pleasure. Remember, you can find past episodes of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.